Hello and welcome to COVID-19, Keeping Up With a Moving Target. I'm your moderator, Faith Rogers with DKB Med. Thank you for joining us. You'll notice several windows on the console. We encourage you to move these to your liking and minimize what you don't need. There's a group chat available to communicate with the other viewers if you're interested. And you're also able to submit questions for the faculty by clicking the Q&A button on the left of your console. Questions will be addressed during our Q&A session at the end of the presentation. At the conclusion of the presentation, you'll be able to access the evaluation and a test for credit by clicking the claim credit button. Your thoughts and comments are important and will help us develop CME activities on this and similar topics in the future. Uh, we'd also like to welcome our Facebook viewers today. Matt will be moderating the Facebook chat. Please ask your questions in the chat uh, for us to direct to faculty. He will also post a link to claim credit. We are pleased to welcome two expert faculty members. Dr. Paul Awater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. And also joining us is Dr. Chuck Vega, Health Sciences Clinical Professor of UC Irvine Department of Family Medicine. Uh, Dr. Awater, Dr. Vega, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you, Faith. Happy to be here. Thank you. Okay, these are their disclosures. Uh, this educational activity is supported by independent medical educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and Eli Lilly and Company. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the planning committee members and faculty presenters. Uh, please do note that the material presented in this program is current as of today, April 28th, 2021, and this information will change as our knowledge of COVID-19 changes. Today's learning objectives are to appraise the efficacy, safety, and indications for treatments for patients with COVID requiring hospitalization, evaluate management strategies for outpatients with mild to moderate COVID-19, explain mechanisms of action of monoclonal antibodies and other current and in development treatments for COVID-19, and describe best practices for managing patients with COVID-19 with monoclonal antibodies and other agents. We do have a few knowledge questions to kick off our webinar. If you don't see the submit button, please scroll down as sometimes it can be cut off on smaller screens. Um, we're gonna start with our first pretest question. A 22-year-old previously healthy patient with no underlying conditions has mild COVID-19. Which of the following is or are recommended for this patient? Dexamethasone, monoclonal antibodies, home isolation and symptom monitoring only, or remdesivir. Okay. Our next question is, monoclonal antibody products are authorized to treat which group of patients with confirmed COVID-19? Any patient, any non-hospitalized patient, 18 years of age or older, non-hospitalized patients 12 years of age or older at, risk for, at high risk for severe disease, or patients hospitalized for COVID-19 12 years of age or older requiring oxygen support? Okay, and our next question is, according to the ACT-1 pivotal trial, which group of patients benefited the most from remdesivir? 
Uh, was it all included patients benefited equally? Was it patients not receiving oxygen? Patients on oxygen not requiring mechanical ventilation or ECMO? Or patients receiving mechanical ventilation or ECMO? Okay, and our final pretest question. The ACT-1 trial found that intravenous remdesivir compared to placebo shortened illness duration by a median of two days, five days, seven days, or 10 days. Please select your answer. Okay, thank you very much. Again, we will revisit these questions at the end of the webinar, but for now I will turn the presentation over to our faculty, Dr. Vega. Dr. Vega, thank you again for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thanks to you for the great introduction and, and thanks to our audience as well. I know you're all really busy and so it takes a lot to take your time out of you know clinical practice or whatever you're up to today. So really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you. And Paul and I have set this up in a little bit of a split between us. Um, I've been a lot more active in the outpatient side in terms of COVID-19 management. You know, we were in a really dark time here in Southern California a few months ago. Uh, the, the fact that it has changed and we went from having, you know, 180 people in-house with COVID-19 down to five now has been uh, just a remarkable turnaround. Uh, and so, uh, but you know, my role was really managing the patients after they were hospitalized, the folks who were discharged from the emergency department, the folks who were tested right in our center outside where we had a, a, COVID, a COVID triage unit. And, and that's where most patients were treated. If most patients uh, with COVID-19, while we certainly focus on those who get very sick, and we are focused on preventing progression of this very serious infection, uh, most patients are treated successfully as outpatients, about four and five overall. And this slide uh, is really a great graphic uh, that Paul was nice enough to provide to us that, uh, that describes the virology, but also the symptomatology, and even includes the treatment uh, that we might recommend for patients with COVID-19. So the red line is the, the level of SARS-CoV-2 um, SARS RNA. Uh, as you can see, it really starts ramping up on that day before symptoms, which makes this um, virus so insidious because something along the lines of at least 30% of, uh, of transmission might be among folks who don't have symptoms, but then they t have a typical course. And, you know, honestly, in the outpatient setting, I don't always see a typical course, but if I had to say how uh, COVID-19 as an outpatient normally goes, it's as described here, beginning with a fever and cough. And unfortunately, in that second week, still being at risk, most patients, of course, don't develop more hypoxia, more dyspnea, and then develop hypoxia have to go into the hospital and have to go to the ICU, but that is still a danger period. And certainly we see that a lot of folks, um, you know, are recovered by week three with maybe some residual cough. This is the outpatient setting, obviously, when they don't have acute respiratory distress uh, syndrome. Um, but unfortunately for the patients who, who go the other way, that minority, um, that's where they really get in trouble and that's where a lot of the mortality happens. It's also important to consider, you know, that we employ our agents that can be effective against COVID-19, particularly antiviral agents. And I will say that the monoclonal antibodies act as antivirals as soon as possible. Yes, we can use them out to 10 days from the onset of illness, but we want to use them as, as soon as possible, really. Now, who is at risk for severe illness with uh, COVID-19? Um, it's the patients we see every day. 
And so this list is constantly changing. And so I don't have all of, yeah. And so I, I can't say there's a definitive list right now because the CDC is making updates all the time. But the folks are particularly important in my practice, obesity, very common, diabetes, very common, chronic kidney disease, COPD, very common, and cerebrovascular disease, including I have a lot of patients with a history of cerebral palsy. And so those are folks I'm really watching closely in terms of their risk. And you know, luckily I've shepherded some really sick patients because it's not just the you know that you're either high risk or, or you know or not at high risk for complications of COVID-19. There's many patients who have four or five of these uh, factors in in play at the same time for uh, risk of complications, and those risks are each factor is added. So uh, so yeah, luckily I've seen patients with five or six of these uh, various factors, including being um, you know well advanced in age, and they've been okay. Uh, we pulled them through. Uh, those patients, by the way, receive monoclonal antibodies that I'm thinking of too. And in a few cases earlier in the course of uh, the pandemic, just they made it through uh, through good grace, I guess. Um, I think it's also important to call out that people of color have been disproportionately affected, particularly uh, black individuals, American Indians, Alaska Natives, um, and Latinx, uh, which is my primary practice here in Santa Ana, California. So this is another group that I pay special attention to. Um, you know, oftentimes we're seeing crowded living conditions. That's certainly in, in my practice. Uh, we're seeing a lot of frontline workers who have to work. There's no real other option. So there's a transmission public health issue, but also a lot of chronic illness, higher rates of chronic illness leading to uh, potentially uh, some some you know real uh, risk of, uh, of severe disease, and I'm sorry if I stepped off for a minute there. That's uh, I, I swear I'm I'm doing my best. Um, so uh, so ambulatory uh, patients. Let's focus on them and let's let's look at some uh, some principles of uh, management. One is you have to have a system for monitoring. I, I was pretty happy with our telehealth system, especially as we started getting more experience with it and developing it appropriately. Um, we were able to follow up patients within 48 hours of their positive tests and check in on their symptomatology. Dyspnea is the big one I was watching for. Uh, unfortunately, we had to send some patients to the ED, but of course, when we were trying to be conservative with our resources uh, for healthcare use, uh, we tried to avoid that if possible. Um, pulse oximetry became a lot more uh, valuable, but don't forget just a simple thermometer too. A lot of patients didn't have one and I was hearing reports about tactile fevers. So I wasn't sure when I could release them from being isolated. Uh, so just those simple tools can be very helpful. Also make sure that they, uh, that the patients understand how to use those tools. And if they say get a uh, oxygen saturation level of 74%, um, but they feel fine, you know, recheck it. Obviously the first rule in when you get an abnormal result that doesn't seem to jive with the clinical picture and the person or the patient in front of you is uh, go ahead and recheck it. And a lot of patients were doing that. I think we're pretty familiar by now with the rules regarding isolation. Uh, luckily, we're not seeing a lot of uh, requests from employers, hey, this patient needs to be retested for COVID-19. That's not a great strategy. Many patients will continue to shed virus even though they uh, have minimal symptoms, including no fever. Uh, so uh, you know, writing letters for those patients to those employers was an effective tool where we were able to uh, get them back to work, which was so critical for many of our patients. And in terms of uh, quarantining, 14 days is still optimum, but 10 days could be uh, considered. Uh, there is a test and break uh, quarantine strategy, uh, but still the person who is quarantined would have to wait um, at least seven days uh, from that con from when the person when they had contact rather with the person who was ill with COVID-19, and they have to be tested at least five days after that contact. So I, I don't think it's a highly valuable strategy for saving maybe a few days to have to go in and get tested, and you're breaking quarantine to do that.
Okay, let's talk about antiviral therapy. It was part of the questions and part of the uh, part of the discussion, um, you know, in your pretest. And the key is these are really um, these really are antiviral agents. Think of them that way. It really helps you overall. Um, so one of the cocktails of uh, monoclonal antibodies, and that's the only thing that's available now, uh, banlinivab plus etacivimab. You may ask, well, what happened to banlinivab as monotherapy? I'll get there. Don't worry. Um, but uh, these uh, two different monoclonal antibodies uh, bind to different uh, parts of the spike protein, different epitopes of the spike protein, and they seem to work better together uh, than separate. You might be thinking, well, what about the new variants? That's exactly why uh, these, this cocktail was developed. Mab uh, really seems to improve the performance of banlinivab as monotherapy uh, when used for these variants. But, uh, but the BLAZE trial was initiated before those variants had emerged, and it was really designed uh, to look at virologic outcomes, you know, clearance of the virus by day 11. Uh, was the primary study outcome. And, uh, and it, you know, Benlinivab alone actually failed in that outcome because so many patients did better. Think back to the slide with the RNA levels. You know, many patients will not be shedding virus at day 11, at least significant amounts. Uh, so therefore, it didn't uh, separate from placebo in that outcome. But to me, as a clinician, a much more important outcome, clinically speaking, uh, was the fact that there was a lot less use of healthcare resources, especially ED visits and hospitalizations associated with the use of this cocktail, banlinivab plus etacivimab. And it's the patients that we see every day. You can see a diverse patient sample. Um, you know, this is a middle-aged group. This isn't a group that's, you know, in that older, older population that's really at high risk for complications. And you can see the dosage there. It is an IV infusion. Um, both of the monoclonal antibodies that are available to treat COVID-19 as outpatients are available as, as IV infusions. And that's really one of the tricks that I'm happy to uh, talk about as you, if you have questions about it or want to talk about solutions that work for you. It's really been the logistics as opposed to the efficacy and what we know about the efficacy and safety of these, uh, of these agents that has made, I think, their use a little bit more challenging. Um, so I think the science is there. Uh, it's just a question of how do we actually access this and get it promptly, again, very promptly to individuals with COVID-19. That's been something of a challenge, but uh, something that we worked through in our health system to, uh, to get it on board in a much more efficient manner as we got more experience with it. But I will say when we first got it, it, we, it came with a, uh, you know, a four-page manual on how to use monoclonal antibodies and like the protocol um, you know, and it wasn't like a six-point font. I'm like, oh my goodness, we're never going to get this on board because we're also dealing with this huge influx of, you know, 100 patients a day uh, with new COVID-19. And so it was, it was a real, it, it did seem like a big challenge, but we, we overcame it. We overcame it with some uh, real good teamwork across our health system. And I'm happy to talk about that later if, uh, if you like. Um, in the Blaze One uh, cohort, this is a, another report from that from that same ongoing study. Um, you know, using now banlinivab, uh, 700 milligrams with 1,400 milligrams of esivimab. Uh, That's the authorized dose, and you can see a significant reduction in healthcare uh, resources. And it turns out that lower dose. Uh, pharmacologically, um, you know, it achieves concentrations which were similar to the higher dose, and that's why this lower dose has uh, has been approved and what we're using moving forward. 
there is another monoclonal antibody out there. So there are choices. Uh, Casarivimab plus Indevimab, um, its emergency use authorization or EUA was in November 2020 um, based on results of a uh, fairly large uh, placebo-controlled trial. Again, patients, these are outpatients with mild to moderate COVID-19, diverse patient sample. And these patients generally had a uh, risk underlying risk factor for uh, severe COVID-19. So obesity was the most common one in this particular study. And uh, so overall, again, uh, similar to uh, the previous study I was describing, Blaze 1, there was a, uh, a reduction in healthcare use, use overall in terms of ED visits and hospitalization. In, in both of these studies, the folks who were at highest risk, those who were older and those who were carrying more chronic illness seemed to do uh, better overall, which is exactly what we wanna see. Um, there were uh, generally uh, very few adverse events overall, and you can see that the dose there was 1,200 milligrams each of casarivimab and indevimab. Another logistical concern that, that can be a challenge is that uh, during these IV infusions, there has to be a crash cart available because it is a monoclonal antibody and there is a, a risk of a severe reaction such as anaphylaxis. Looking at the uh, clinical trials, there, there were really just a couple events that, that might be described as, as severe that were that could have been related uh, to the infusion. And broadly, as these agents have been applied nationally, I just haven't seen any safety signals of uh, frequent um, uh, or you know even uh, somewhat common um, infusions or reactions that are that severe that require a crash guard. They do they do need to be present, um, and personnel have to be present to know how to use them. But it doesn't. It certainly appears to be uh, extremely uh, rare, and not necessarily something that should hold somebody back as an individual from receiving the monoclonal antibody um, if you think it's warranted, because they are an outpatient at high risk of complications. And in terms of other side effects, these uh, these agents are really well tolerated uh, with a side effect profile that's similar to placebo overall. This is new data on castorivimab plus indevimab. It's a, this is a phase three study, so a larger number of patients, all uh, you know, they had a high risk for complications for COVID-19, another diverse sample. Here we see uh, that same reduction in hospitalization, but also uh, death, you know, either of those outcomes was improved with castorivimab plus indevimab uh, versus placebo. Also a shorter course of illness. And so this study uh, was actually stopped early uh, because of a clear difference uh, favoring the active uh, intervention group with casarivimab and indepimab. So what about those variants? I, I promised I would get back to them, and then I probably faded out for a second, so I did promise. So sorry if my connection was was interrupted there shortly. Um, but that's the the variants are. If you were thinking, gosh, maybe you know that we don't see banalimab is because of the you know these variants and the emergence of variants. That's exactly right. Um, even though B one one seven is now the predominant strain in the United States. Uh, and banlimumab was really uh, was not affected by that one. It's the emergence of these other uh, variants that, that don't have certainly a majority of uh, cases. They're, they're still relatively um, smaller proportion of cases overall, but could grow, uh, could grow. And then definitely associated with uh, what appears to be, you know, more uh, virulent uh, type of um, infection, you know, with, you know, potentially higher risk for complications. That's the B1351 and the P1. Um, in particular is, is what I'm thinking of. And so adding the atacivimab, there might be some uh, slight uh, reduction in terms of its efficacy 
um, overall, but uh, but it's still judged to be effective and still recommended even for uh, these variants. Whereas uh, this that's for banlimumab and etzivimab. For casuvimab plus indevimab, uh, there really doesn't seem to be a change so far. But of course, this is a fluid situation that will continue to have uh, require monitoring. So. So let's go over the EUA uh, just specifically. Um, it's similar for the two different types of monoclonal antibody cocktails. So uh, these are individuals who are outpatients. So uh, so the the monoclonal antibodies have been uh, studied among inpatients with resulting in the negative trial. And there are ongoing trials. There still might be a role, um, but they right now monoclonal antibodies should not be used in the inpatient setting in, unless it's in a clinical trial. So these are folks who are at high risk for uh, COVID-19 complications. That's a pretty easy box to check because there are so many risk factors for complications of COVID-19. Have to be at least 12 years of age. So you can give it to adolescents, say with asthma, um, you know, with cystic fibrosis. So those are those are uh, you know younger people who can qualify for for receiving monoclonal antibodies. Um, patients do need to be monitored during the infusion at least one hour after, and there has to be essentially a crash card available and personnel who know how to, know how to use it. So again, I, I think that you know you can use these agents out to 10 days um, after the onset of symptoms, but the sooner you get them on board, uh, it's expected that you'll get better outcomes. So really try to uh, to to move those patients through who uh, who would qualify from you know getting a consent to treatment to treatment as as soon as possible, and not for hospitalized patients again. The recommendations regarding the uh, monoclonal antibodies have, have shifted uh, a number of times, but uh, right now the NIH uh, recommends them for outpatients at high risk, either cocktail, and um, the uh, Infectious Disease Society of America more or less uh, reflects that same um, sentiment with uh, recommending for patients with mild to moderate illness as outpatients, but also watch for that local variant susceptibility. Um, and that's something that I think we'll be continuing to follow, and we'll probably be getting more of a focus in terms of what's happening, happening locally in our area um, as we uh, develop the kinds of uh, screening technology that allow us to um, you know to provide you know really more data down to you know just where you live and where your patients are living okay um, this is more of a preview this is nothing that we uh, you know are going to recommend that you initiate now but um, you might think, well, gee, if they're antivirals, say, like for influenza is a good example, we can use a drug like Oseltamivir for treatment of influenza. We can also use this prophylaxis, and it's pretty good as prophylaxis. Could the monoclonal antibodies have some role there, too? Well, it's actually been studied. Banlimumab has been employed in a skilled nursing facility, which has you know, been a really uh, devastated uh, setting when it comes to COVID-19. And it has been proven effective as a prevention strategy uh, for both patients as well as or residents and staff as well. And so that's something to, to think about and you know, maybe be hopeful about. Um, the other thing I'd point out is that casarivimab and indevimab also has a study looking at household contact, so uh, prevention of household transmission of uh, COVID-19, and it was also effective in terms of preventing symptomatic infection. And also note that it was delivered as a subcutaneous dose, and that's, that's something that's hopeful because, as I said, the logistics of getting an IV infusion has been challenging in many practice sites like mine. And so, uh, therefore, the potential for you know patient uh, you know who can initiate their own treatment um, could be a game changer. And so that's something that that bears watching, right? You know, in the future as well. Right now, not used for prevention. Um, not it is an IV infusion, but that could change uh, in the future. I just thought it would be worth sharing.
And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Paul, but I, I want your take on the variants and, you know, where you, you see things now with regards to, we, we're really focusing on therapeutics uh, now with regards to the monoclonal antibodies, but where we might be going to, if you can provide any insight on that, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. Uh, Chuck, a couple of things that I that sort of strike me as we look at what's been happening in the past weeks, you've already pointed out how some of the variants of concern, especially the 117 originally described in the UK, has become the predominant uh, strain in the United States. Uh, and, and what we've seen is a skew towards younger people. Uh, you know, even though um, uh, they're not as likely to be ill, only about 5% are hospitalized, it's still a bit controversial, but there's a concern these strains are more virulent. And of course, there's a, a large population of young people, uh, some of them who are overweight and have risk factors. So, you know, we're seeing that kind of patient now more commonly in the hospital. The other group that we're seeing, and we think the variants are at play here too to a degree, but less so, are uh, people that have been immunized but don't have a great response to uh, vaccine. So people that are immunosuppressed and so on. And I think there's a sense that we can let our guard down, but especially if you're someone that uh, has an immune system that's not going to respond as well to a vaccine. That's not the fault of the vaccine, of course. And that's really the group where they're uh, we're admitting people who have had transplants or recent malignancies to hospital. They just didn't respond that well to the vaccine. And, and these are people that I think there's opportunities at the first time they're having symptoms to get tested and then send them for monoclonal antibody therapy. Because this is really the, you know, trying to get them to uh, be treated within a few days of symptoms, uh, that's when the virus is still at very high levels. And this kind of uh, monoclonal antiviral therapy would have most effects. So I think it's quite underutilized. And we do have to change our frame of reference a little bit and, and make sure if someone calls up and says, I have you know, symptoms that could be COVID, even if they've been immunized, you know, what's their risk factors and so on. And, and there's sometimes some urgency there, even though on the whole, the vaccine picture is so great, bright because uh, on average, people just have mild disease, but that's not gonna be true for everyone. And there's a whole bunch of unimmunized people and our community rates are still uh, uh, substantially high in most parts of the country. Yeah, it and it definitely takes a team. I alluded to the fact that the logistics of uh, using the monoclonal antibodies uh, can be can be challenging in, in primary care practices. But if you have an infusion center, if you have a area carved out in your hospital or your emergency department, or you know maybe it's a, a different kind of healthcare setting, a dialysis center, um, those those places can be can be really quite valuable. And so you can link up patients. I also really give us because the, the patients are, are sick, so they you know, they, they just want to go home and it's difficult. So I really try to convey a sense of urgency to the patients and their loved ones as well who are going to be guiding them through this um, to, to make sure that they uh, they get treatment promptly and that you know that they that they're following up and uh, and getting you know get if they're get if the, their phones are on, they're answering them and they, they are getting their appointments and, and, and completing the infusion. Yeah, Chuck, I'd say like so many things uh, and I, I've spoken to a number of my primary care colleagues you know, the first time it seems a little daunting, but the paperwork usually isn't that difficult. And at least here in Maryland, the, the infusion centers do their own screening. You just have to send the referral there uh, with the patient's contact information. And of course, every uh, state is probably handling this differently. But, you know, once you get it done once, you realize it, it's not as big a barrier as you might think. 
Yeah, in our center, there was a, a lot of worry that they would be completely overwhelmed with uh, with patients. So they set a, a, a series of checks and uh, and yeah and and computer work essentially that made it pretty difficult to get patients in. And lo and behold, it was crickets over there. Um, and then they started to relax that, and and we we uh, we found it. But yeah, absolutely. On on my side, uh, yeah, as I said, I was pretty pessimistic about the about the application and then a real once we got going it was which was critical by the time uh, february hit and we were seeing the really high caseloads um it was much smoother so yeah do try it and and, and work with your team on it get some help yeah and and this is really the only therapy we have for patients at the moment right. and and it is you know the studies suggest it's quite effective especially for our high risk patients so you know this is really the the area where I think of all the treatments that have been developed has the most potential for benefiting our patients. So, you know, the monoclonal antibodies, uh, I just remain think are the most important tool we have at the moment, because once you're in the hospital with severe COVID, the, the horse is a little bit out of the barn there. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be talking more about hospitalized patients now. Uh, Absolutely. So, so Chuck's area, I think, has the most potential once you're sick and hospitalized, uh, you know, there's been a lot of focus on vaccines and Operation Warp Speed. It's had tremendous payoffs and prevention is always a, a better uh, equation than waiting until you're ill. Uh, but there are some treatments that I think have important potential for helping our patients that I'd like to review with you today. And as Chuck had mentioned with the monoclonal antibodies, those are antivirals, but we actually have a drug that's a, a pure antiviral uh, that is the only FDA fully approved drug for COVID-19, and that's from Desivir, a drug that was originally developed for Ebola virus infection, uh, but has uh, activity against coronaviruses. And this is a drug much like some of the early HIV drugs that inhibit RNA um, uh, production. So the virus can't make new uh, RNA molecules that would direct protein synthesis and the building of new virions. So uh, this drug, of course, works earlier in illness when you have more virus as it's a basic antiviral. It's actually a prodrug that needs to be metabolized. And this is a trial that earned the FDA approval, the NIH-sponsored Act One trial, uh, which I think has influenced most of us in thinking about this drug a trial of over a thousand patients that was placebo controlled. And the primary endpoint was time to recovery. And this was done earlier in the pandemic and there was a substantial difference of five days. And I think uh, back when our hospitals were very full, every day counted to try to earn an empty bed for another patient. So this is uh, an important tool, I would say, here. And there was even a mortality trend, as you can see, but it wasn't didn't hold up statistically because honestly, this trial wasn't powered for mortality. Now, uh, many of you may have heard of the solidarity trial. That was a WHO trial. That, that was a negative trial for a 28-day mortality, but this didn't have a placebo arm, and it was compared to other drugs done in a lot of countries, and many of the remdesivir-treated uh, patients were done in Iran. And so I think a lot of people that have looked at that didn't feel that it warranted the kind of uh, abandonment of remdesivir that many um, 
uh, have uh, done in Europe. And I think this drug does have its uh, place. This is the overall curve for all comers in the ACT-1 trial, showing uh, that there was um, a better time to improvement in recovery in the remdesivir arm. But as you dialed into a sub-analysis, uh, here's the take-home point that in this trial, the patients that seemed to experience the most benefit for, were those who needed oxygen but weren't yet ill enough to be in the intensive care unit. So, so again, speaking to being on that earlier side of the COVID-19 infection when there is still probably uh, virus um, uh, uh, production and replicating at uh, reasonable enough levels. Because if you looked at the subgroup already in the ICU, uh, the lines were nearly superimposable. So uh, for this reason, uh, the um, uh, the guidance uh, you'll see shortly uh, very much depended on this trial to know where this antiviral may have a role. Now, in terms of safety as an antiviral, it actually uh, has done fairly well in the trial itself on, on balance. Uh, adverse effects were actually less in the active arm, which speaks to the fact that it was probably tamping down infection a bit um, as uh, the placebo group tended to have higher adverse rates of infection. Um, and uh, this is a trial uh, that uh, was actually done at Hopkins, a retrospective study, I should say, um, that had a high uh, um, a number of people of color, as we tend to do in our East Baltimore hospital. And this was done um, later, or at least uh, included patients throughout the pandemic and through the fall. And we still found a difference of two days in terms of clinical improvement, but we also saw a mortality benefit there. Although again, the um, people early in the trial, of course, were uh, having the highest mortality in almost all trials. So, uh, so I think this is a drug that does have its place. And as you look um, at this um, observational uh, trial, looking back, it does seem to fit pretty well uh, with Act 1 criteria and for benefit with use uh, uh, in that population. So uh, the NIH uh, pretty much has taken the Act 1 trial and said that this drug uh, should be used if people are sick with severe COVID, needing oxygen, but not ill enough to be in the ICU. IDSA has been a little more liberal and still uh, has a role for people that uh, where it requires supplemental oxygen um, or mechanical ventilation or ECMO. And I'd have to say one group that you may think about, although there's only emerging data, is again, that very immunosuppressed population that could still have very active viral replication even later into illness if they're not capable of generating their own antibody responses. The, now, we, we don't have monoclonal antibodies, as Chuck has mentioned, for hospitalized patients outside of clinical trial or emergency IND use, uh, but we do have convalescent plasma. Uh, this uh, was authorized first under expanded access and then emergency use authorization. And the thought is you're, you're providing antibodies sufficiently that will neutralize substantial amounts of virus and therefore uh, decrease the harm Although, uh, since you're giving antibodies, it may have some other immunomodulatory aspects. The EUA was revised uh, earlier this year because of findings, which I'll, I'll go into shortly, that suggested only what they call high titer plasma is helpful in uh, hospitalized patients. But uh, the criteria 
for high titer sort of differs in different studies. But this, there are a couple of trials here that I think are important to realize. Um, and these are uh, what I would call positive trials. I mean, it's hard to explain away a positive uh, result. And, and although this is from the expanded access use that was um, organized uh, through the Mayo Clinic and many centers throughout the country with over 35,000 patients, they did have a subset of these patients where the titer was known of the plasma. And, and what they found was that if you received high titer, there was a mortality benefit uh, of about 25%, as you can see here, and, and also a decrease in tendency towards uh, mechanical ventilation. So th this seemed to suggest uh, that plasma does have a role, and again, uh, with earlier treatment, meaning you're not uh, far along in illness, but it was a retrospective study. The other study, which I think is very similar to the monoclonal antibody therapies, was the use of high titer plasma in an older population. Here, people had to be 65 or older. In this uh, placebo-controlled uh, blinded uh, study uh, done in Argentina, and you had to get the convalescent plasma within three days of symptom onset. And again, there was an absolute risk reduction there in progression to severe disease. So again, earlier treatment uh, may have a role here. Now, unfortunately, um, plasma use in the United States has declined substantially from about 40% of patients to 10%. And a lot of it's based on the fact that there have been a large number of negative trials. And I like to think of this as uh, a heterogeneous product, meaning uh, often uh, these trials, we didn't know if they were getting low or high titer plasma, a heterogeneous population. Uh, many of these studies were done uh, when people had symptoms already for over a week. Um, uh, and because of that, I think many of these studies, in fact, uh, turned out to be negative. And, and the uh, recovery trial, a large trial, uh, 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 that has been done in the United Kingdom uh, said there was no mortality benefit. It was essentially equivalent uh, to not receiving it in that group and said that there's not a role. And I think this has driven down the use, but I, I think this does have a role. Uh, and the meta-analysis, I think, has persuaded a lot of our colleagues who are on clinical guidelines looking at the evidence to say uh, the NIH said there's insufficient evidence to recommend for or against, uh, but, um, uh, and this is even true in patients, um, uh, I'm sorry, this is true in patients who have impaired immunity, and the IDSA uh, recommends against it. And personally, I, you know, I, I think you have to look at the positive trials against all these negative trials that can be explained in large part so if you know you have access to a high titer uh, plasma unit, you have a patient early in therapy, and especially if that person has a weak immune system, I think there may still be a role for your patients who are hospitalized early in illness. Now we're gonna shift to later in illness and talk about the immune modulators and the recovery trial, which I mentioned earlier, uh, is a large pragmatic trial, which was able to generate high numbers, so you could actually look at a mortality benefit. This was done early in the pandemic in the United Kingdom, and I think many of us were surprised at the outcome 
because steroids have a checkered record uh, for use in the ICU for ARDS. And here there seemed to be a substantial mortality benefit uh, with um, about a 35% reduction in mortality, uh, as you can see in this um, slide where ventilated patients uh, declined from over 41% down to about 30%. And even if you were on oxygen, uh, there was a smaller uh, benefit. Now, if you didn't require oxygen, there's actually a trend towards worsening. So again, giving steroids early in illness is probably not a good idea when viral replication is still predominant. But once the inflammation kicks in, uh, this trial uh, is suggestive. And this is the first trial to really show mortality benefit. Now, um, probably United Kingdom and Northern Italy are the two areas in the world at the time that had the highest mortality rates, high, higher than in the United States, where our typical ICU patient mortality was more akin to 25%. But I, I do feel that this has become a standard drug in the United States, along with remdesivir. Uh, uh, for those that um, are uh, requiring oxygen or in the ICU um, and uh, has become part of a standard recommendation. One, uh, one drug uh, class, the anti-interleukin-6 uh, uh, class, um, uh, perhaps best typified by a drug called tocilizumab, originally designed for rheumatoid arthritis and, and um, autoimmune diseases, uh, uh, was adopted early on in the Chinese guidelines back in the winter of 2020 because of the sense that a cytokine storm may be causing uh, a lot of problems in that second week of illness. However, uh, and this is hard to see on this slide, but multiple studies that tried to examine tocilizumab versus placebo flunked. So this really fell out of favor, I would say, by the summer of 2020, but then this last trial, the IMPACTA trial, came around. And this trial had a benefit where it said tocilizumab seemed to uh, halt or slow the progression of mechanical ventilation and death when you had a composite endpoint. But the, the difference here is the IMPACTA trial was done after that dexamethasone recovery trial. So over 80% of patients were also on dexamethasone. So it, that was an interesting finding. And, and since two other trials where over 80% of people are on dexamethasone, it appears that tocilizumab may have a role, although all these studies, again, are somewhat heterogeneous and a little hard to compare. But in this case, the addition of tocilizumab uh, to people that needed high-flow oxygen or in the ICU um, uh, uh, seemed to provide a 10-day benefit in terms of shortening what they call organ-free support, mostly ventilator support, but also dialysis and so on. And there was also a, a, a mortality benefit, it appeared, from about 35% to 28%. And then the recovery trial, this is the third time we're mentioning this, also had an arm for tocilizumab. They had very high numbers. Um, this trial, uh, again, had 82% of people on steroids and, and the sense was that people here, this was applied to anyone who required oxygen, progressed less to mechanical ventilation and also appeared to improve more substantially than if they didn't get it. So on the whole, if you look at um, some of these trials, like the recovery trial, look at the group here that got 
uh, steroids at the same time, clearly favoring uh, tocilizumab, whereas if you didn't get uh, uh, the dexamethasone there, did not appear to be the same difference. So it looks like dual anti-inflammatory therapy may have a role. And indeed, if you look at all the trials, most of the the benefit uh, for uh, dexam, I'm sorry, tocilizumab has been driven by these three trials where patients were also substantially on uh, corticosteroids. So uh, recently, the NIH has updated their guidance and said that the combination might be very helpful for our patients who are clearly heading into that hyperinflammatory phase that might need high flow oxygen, non-invasive mechanical ventilation or mechanical ventilation, um, and also had an elevation in C-reactive protein, meaning they were in that hyperinflammatory state. Um, and uh, IDSA uh, very similarly um, thought that there could be a role uh, in those advanced uh, COVID-19 cases. So uh, that was a quick survey of hospitalized patients. I'd say that monoclonals, uh, as Chuck has outlined, I think have the greatest impact if you can get your patients at risk for severe disease uh, uh, administered early uh, after onset of symptoms. Uh, remdesivir is FDA approved for all hospitalized uh, patients, but I think most centers are using it uh, uh, akin to the ACT-1 trial where it did show a five-day improvement in length of symptoms um, and in a group that wasn't yet in the intensive care unit but needed oxygen. Um, early treatment is really the rule. This is the same also for influenza and oseltamivir. You wanna to try to start any kind of antiviral therapies as soon as possible. And dexamethasone is clearly uh, now become one of the standard drugs for our ill patients who require oxygen, and especially in the ICU. So, uh, and here we are now uh, for post-test, and then we'll try to help answer questions. Okay. Faith, you with us? Yes. We may okay. not have faith. So, uh, we have charity, we may not have faith. So, um, yeah, I can, uh, you know, I've got the question and answer. Maybe you could take the first one, Paul, and I, I could jump in. Sure. A 22-year-old previously healthy patient with no underlying conditions is mild COVID-19. What's recommended here? Is it dexamethasone, monoclonal antibodies, uh, home isolation, symptom monitoring only, or remdesivir? Go ahead and make a selection. Thank you to both of you for swooping in, uh, coming to the rescue. Uh, as a note, these slides will be available after the webinar. They should be available now in the resource window. Um, as we go through the post-test, please ask any questions you may have for faculty by submitting them in the Q&A box. Um, here's what you said in the pretest for our first knowledge question. And a few more of you said, home isolation and symptom monitoring only. So what was the correct answer here to our faculty? It was uh, home isolation. Remember, it's a 22-year-old um, uh, person. So uh, without any risk factors for complications of COVID-19, um, they should do just fine on home isolation and symptom monitoring. And so monoclonal antibodies in particular would not be indicated in this case because of the lack of a risk for complications of COVID-19. 
Great job, 90, 93%, excellent. Fantastic, thank you. And our second question is, monoclonal antibody products are authorized to treat which group of patients with confirmed COVID-19? Is that any patient, any non-hospitalized patient, 18 years of age or older, non-hospitalized patients, 12 years of age or older at high risk for dis severe disease, or patients hospitalized for COVID-19, 12 years of age or older requiring oxygen support? Please answer now. Okay, and here's what we said before. It looks like most people said patients hospitalized for COVID-19, 12 years of age or older requiring oxygen support. Um, but in the post-test, it looks like a, a great deal more of you did say non-hospitalized patients, 12 years of age or older at high risk for severe disease. So how did our uh, learners do? I, I think that that purple bar speaks for itself. Great job, that is the correct answer. So remember, monoclonal antibodies for outpatients only. Perfect. Okay, and our third knowledge question. According to the COVID-19 Act 1 pivotal trial, which group of patients benefited the most from remdesivir? Did all included patients benefit equally? Was it patients not receiving oxygen? Patients on oxygen not requiring mechanical ventilation or ECMO, or patients receiving mechanical ventilation or ECMO? Okay, and it looks like most people in the pretest said patients on oxygen not requiring mechanical ventilation or ECMO, and after. Okay, and even more of you. So what was the correct answer here? Dr. Alvaro, I'll, I'll toss this one to you. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, our uh, listeners today, thank you. Uh, you hit it spot on uh, with the correct answer. And uh, uh, so as Chuck said, it speaks for itself. Uh, this is really the group that seems to have most impact uh, on average. Fantastic. And this is our final post-test before we go to the Q&A. So the ACT-1 trial found that intravenous remdesivir compared to placebo shortened illness duration by a median duration of, was it two days, five days, seven days, or 10 days? Okay, and pre, this is what you said before. And here's what you said after. Any comment there, Dr. Allwater? Yeah, so I, I think this is a little tricky only because one of the studies, the ACT-1 said five days, that's the correct answer. Uh, some more recent data I showed said two days, so a little tricky because we said the ACT-1 study. The overall important aspect which everyone got is it did shorten the duration of illness. Fantastic. Well, we will now move to the Q&A. Um, as a reminder, to submit a question, please click the Q&A button on the, the left of your console. We will try to get to as many questions as time allows. Um, so our first question today is, is there or will there be practice guidelines from the FDA on when SARS-CoV-2 sequencing is recommended or needed to guide patient care, such as monoclonal antibodies, plasma, or vaccine breakthrough infection? Maybe I'll, I'll take that one first. Uh, you know, the, we were a little behind the United Kingdom in sequencing, 
But even so, sequencing is not really done in real-time basis. Uh, maybe we'll develop some diagnostic tests that can give um, more rapid information. But sequencing itself is uh, being done on a, a pool, you know, on a, a basis uh, uh, days after acquisition of samples. So for the moment, we really um, just have a general sense of epidemiology. I'll tell you uh, the latest CDC information, for example, this week is about a month old. So th that's the sort of delay we're dealing with. And at the moment, um, I think you, that's the best we have to help guide us. But uh, at the moment, any vaccine, any uh, monoclonal that is available, um, I think uh, you should uh, consider using uh, regardless because I think they do have activities. Okay, and what is the ideal time to initiate remdesivir treatment? Well, since that fell in my area, uh, the remdesivir, I would say, is at, at the moment, I would use it for people uh, the moment they sort of know you require oxygen in the hospital. The only exception, as I mentioned, is if someone is uh, presenting uh, at any phase but has a very uh, weak immune system, you may want to consider using it there. And some of our centers have even gotten cycle thresholds uh, if their labs are capable of doing it to see if they're still replicating virus because it may have a role, especially when you combine it with um, uh, convalescent plasma therapy. Fantastic. And Dr. Vega, I'll toss this one to you and Dr. Alwater, feel free to chime in. But um, if a patient with significant comorbidities mm -hmm. develops COVID infection more than 14 days after the second dose of vaccine and meets criteria for monoclonal antibodies otherwise, is this patient eligible for antibodies? Uh, yes, and so um, I love the question because it speaks to the you know the fact that we want to get this patient in, and so it, there are not everybody is going to respond to the vaccine. We know that in the clinical trials it was not 100% effective, and then there are a lot of folks out there who are older and with um, immune deficiencies, perhaps, um, who would benefit from monoclonal antibody. So treat the patient in the situation in front of you. Um, and go ahead and initiate those monoclonal antibodies. They could be a game changer for keeping the patient out of the hospital. Okay. Um, and next question is, for someone who has received antibodies, what is the guidance for vaccination? Should they wait for a specified period of time, or is any particular vaccine better for these patients? Uh, there, There is guidance. The Patients are supposed to wait 90 days uh, since the administration of monoclonal antibodies to uh, to receive the vaccine, and that's a reasonable period because they had the infection they're, they're, and they have monoclonal antibodies on board. They're they're likely uh, to be protected in that interim, um, and so 90 days is the uh, is the recommended interval. And you know, but those patients should still be vaccinated. They should not believe that they are uh, going to be immune from COVID-19 for you know for a year or two or whatever. Um, definitely bring them in for vaccination. Okay, thank you very much. Um, the next question is, are there contraindications to remdesivir? And maybe you could talk about those a little. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I would say the major one, obviously, I, I don't think too many people are going to have a, a hypersensitivity known to remdesivir at this point, um, is if your uh, liver function tests are more than five times normal, because there have been a rare instances of um, remdesivir driving hepatotoxicity. 
The one uh, area that gets a lot of questions actually is regarding um, renal dysfunction because there is a warning on the remdesivir packaging. And that has to do not with the remdesivir, that, that has not to do with the remdesivir drug, but rather to the excipient, the carrier, which is cyclodextran. This is the identical carrier in an antifungal drug called voriconazole. And we know from years of using intravenous voriconazole in the ICU that um, this is not an issue. Um, there seems to be no toxicity. Uh, so, and this has been borne out in a number of studies. So five days of remdesivir, even for patients on end-stage renal disease and so on, uh, this is something that I think should still be administered. And I think if people are holding it because of the FDA uh, warning, uh, uh, which is more just of a warning, it's not a contraindication, uh, I think you're doing a potential disservice to your patients. So, um, and uh, there are uh, a number of uh, observational studies in our own Hopkins experience, people that got remdesivir, including renal transplant patients, by and large did better than those that didn't get it. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm going to take a couple more questions. Uh, this question is, is there a genetic basis to worse outcomes for African-American and Hispanic individuals, or is this a social determinant of health? Yeah, that's that's been a subject of uh, some uh, intensive study and debate, and it certainly seems to be it's more of those social determinants of health. When uh, the results are adjusted comparing white, black, and Latinx populations for things uh, like their socioeconomic uh, status, um, education level, a lot of those disparities start to fall away. So it doesn't seem to be a strong genetic underpinning here. It is the fact that they're, that folks who, uh, who are from those uh, communities, black communities, Latinx communities, uh, generally have more comorbidities, more difficulty accessing healthcare, more crowded conditions, et cetera. Great. Um, thank you for that. And our next question is, if a vaccine is given less than nine days of receiving antibodies, does this reduce the effectiveness of the vaccine? Yeah, I, I mean, I would just add to Chuck's response quickly um, that there is the potential that having the monoclonals around, which, you know, given their half-life means you, you probably have some even more than 60 days after receiving it, could sort of mop up some of the spike protein and therefore uh, reduce your body's um, uh, chance of uh, developing uh, a response. We do know that vaccine-induced immunity seems to be better on the whole than natural immunity for some people, especially against some of the variants of concern. So um, waiting the 90 days is fine. Now I'll tell you, in, um, you know, there's been no studies specifically addressing this. So. Um, but I think the 90 days is a good time frame to wait. Okay, thank you again. Uh, for our audience, if you would like to claim credit, please click the claim credit button that will appear when the webcast ends. Um, please also be on the lookout for our 30-day survey, which you will receive in the email. Um, as always, your responses will help us develop further education. Uh, thank you for joining us. And Dr. Alwater, Dr. Vega, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Stay well. Thank you. Yep. Please do.